Vince Lombardi became a household word to every football fan and every football player. He was a kind of a Napoleonic uh, uh, little tyrant. What a coach he was. And he took the Green Bay Packers, uh, just really kind of a, just a little old town up there in, in uh, the north part of the United States, and he took the Green Bay Packers and, and, and molded them into a dynasty. The greatest, perhaps one of the greatest football teams that have, has played in, in the NFL history. And Vince Lombardi did something that, uh, that no other pro football coach has ever done. He won three world championships. He was a fanatic on fundamentals. I mean, he, he drilled on essentials. Somebody said, I don't think he had, but about eight basic plays, and he just executed. And his emphasis was on execution. And they'd run to the right, and they'd run to the left, and the emphasis was on the basics, on the essentials. He was a fundamentalist fanatic. He believed in blocking and tackling and running. And in this dynasty he developed, his name became known to everyone. One day they got drilled by this team much inferior to the, to the Green Bay Packers. As, well, as a matter of fact, every team they played was inferior to the Green Bay Packers. But this team couldn't even get on the field with them, really, as far as the statistics were concerned, and they just drilled them, just worked them over. And Vince Lombardi was enraged. He was a wild man. He called for an early morning practice the next morning, in full uniform, and they came suited out, and, and their jerseys were still wet. And these great big old mammoth, gigantic football players were just intimidated by this little guy. And they were sitting in this room ready for, the, for, for practice, and he walked in, and you could hear a pin drop. And he got a football, and he held it up in his hands. He said, now men, we're going to get back to the basics. This is a football. It's like saying to your mother, Mother, this is a skillet. Or a librarian, this is a book. He said, this ball with pointed ends is a football. And he said, we play on a football field. It's got two lines, one at each end of the field. It's called the goal line. And he said, when you cross your opponent's goal line, Believe it or not, you score six points. And they sat there and listened to that guy just drill them with the basics. As a matter of fact, he just kept bringing them back over and over and over again to the essentials, to the basics, to the fundamentals. We have to do that occasionally. We, we even have to do that in the church. Just come on back down and, and bring the people back to really make, a, make a, uh, a distinction between the basics and the peripheral. And the church has always done that. And we've come to believe that there are some basics, some essentials, some fundamentals. The infallibility of the Scriptures, the virgin birth and deity of Christ, the substitutionary atoning death of Christ upon the cross, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, apart from works. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The visible and literal return of Jesus to the earth again. 
And the ultimate assignment of the, the dead to heaven and to hell. These basic fundamentals we just keep coming back to. They are essentials that we must never leave. And the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, the church is involved in such a kind of controversy. We noticed that two Sunday nights ago. It was a time of disagreement in the church, time of controversy and conflict. Have you ever noticed that oftentimes God uses the times of disagreement and conflict to bring us back to the basics and the fundamentals? I heard Landrum Level, who is now the president of the New Orleans Seminary, say that, that he was preaching and pastoring a church that just fussed all the time. He said they just wrangled and hassled and argued. And he said, one day I just decided, you can go on about your hassling and your arguing and your fussing all you want to. I'm just going to get back to the basic principle of leading people to Christ. He said, I just let them fuss and let them argue. And I got out and started winning people to the Lord. Sometimes God brings times of conflict, brings out of that our return to the essentials. Now I want you to locate verse 28 of chapter 15. I want to read that right at the beginning, verse 28 of chapter 15. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, these basics, you, you probably don't know this, but that Greek word there for essentials is there and only there in the New Testament. It's a dynamic word. It's a word that means that which is compulsory, that which is absolutely necessary. Now, what is this conflict that's going on in the church uh, in Jerusalem that has caused this gathering of information and this decision about what is essential and what is peripheral? Well, verses one and verse, verse 1 and verse 5 say that the controversy had to, deal, had to do with Gentile conversion. These Gentiles were being saved. And Christianity up to that point was basically a Jewish religion. And now the gospel is beginning to spread and it's going out into all the world and Gentiles are coming to Christ. And the con con controversy that developed was in, with regard to the Gentile conversion. There were some Pharisees, some Jews in the church at Jerusalem who said, now these people will have to be Jews before they can be children of God. That is, they'll have to go through the ceremony of the Jewish customs and they'll have to observe the Jewish law, the law of Moses, those dietary laws and those... Uh, uh, laws that were established in the Old Testament, before they can be accepted in the plan of God in essence, they'll have to be a little bit Jew at, at least. And verse 11, Peter's talking in this controversy and he says, no, we don't believe that. We believe that a person comes to Christ through faith in Jesus Christ and that plus nothing. And I said two weeks ago that this controversy and this decision made in the church at Jerusalem has impacted every generation since. And the impact was, that was made was this, that they determined and decided that salvation was by faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. So that a guy can come in off the street after having been busted and having smoked a couple of joints and downed a few six-packs, walk into this street on Sunday night and hear a guy stand up and preach the simplest sermon 
tell a few stories and he can come down this aisle and receive Jesus Christ into his life and be radically, revolutionarily redeemed and transformed. Now that's what this passage says. That a person is born again, whatever it is, he's saved through faith and Jesus Christ alone, nothing else. Now, begin reading with me at verse 15. For James is there, and, and he's listening to this controversy that's going on in the church. Now, James perhaps was the pastor. At least he was the judge over all that was being said. He was, he was the judge over, the, over this dialogue, this forum that was taking place. And this is what he said, verse 13. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has raised how God first, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, I want you to write this down because I want you to get this. I want you to notice, I want you to follow with me the line of logic that this man takes as he brings the decision to, to focus there in that council in Jerusalem. Now, they didn't vote. No, there's no evidence that they took a vote. They just kind of agreed that it was right. It was, it was proper. And, and James just, just kind of uh, gathers up the thinking that he senses and feels there after these pe people have spoken. And this is his line of logic, number one. First, first step in his logic that God is doing a new work among us. He's calling out the Gentiles. Now I want to nestle down there just a little bit. And it's just, you know, it's not, by, it's not by accident that I began this study in the book of Acts way back in the cold part of the winter because I believe that, that having God swept into our church all these new Christians and this revival this summer and, and everything, everything just fits together. It's just the right time to study this verse right here, this passage. Just the right time. Now, what James is saying is this. God is doing a new work among us. He's, he's calling out the Gentiles uh, to, 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 to follow His name. Now, the problem that some of us have is that... Uh, the mistake some of us make is that we, we just feel like we know what God's going to do next. And we have, we have God that's kind of shut up in our preconceived ideas about how God's going to act and when He's going to act. You and I do that, don't we? I just think I know all that God is going to do. I mean, I've got Him all figured out. I've got Him shut up in this little box of brains. And I know just how God is going to act. And I, just, I know just when He's going to act. I know I can predict Him. And sometimes I feel like if God were to come in our services on Sunday, you know, in a suit... We'd hand him a program, and we'd say, Now, now God, we got you scheduled here right after the offering. When, and uh, and we want, we'd give you five minutes, and uh, we, we'd, like for you to do, we, we'd like for you to do this for us. You know. And we've got him all figured out, and we've got it planned out just like we know God's going to act. And, and we've we got these preconceived and, uh, conceptions about how God acts. Let me tell you something. God doesn't always act the way we think He's going to act. God does new things. Uh, was it Domenici, the, the Italian, who, who decided he was going to uh, 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 dramatize, dramatize Pentecost? 
Domenici was a kind of an Italian Barney fight. You know, he's always, you know, just fouling everything up. And he was going to dramatize Pentecost. And so he had it all set up. And he had these uh, 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 gas pipes that were fixed above the disciples' heads. And he was going to blow gas down and set it on fire. You know, cloven tongues of fire. The problem was that the fire got out of control, caught the trappings on the stage on fire, and burned the theater down. And how uh, and and uh, how. Alfred Luckett says with kind of tongue-in-cheek, you better be careful when you begin to deal with God. He might get out of control. You better be careful when you start you know, handling Pentecost because God might do some things over which we have no control. Let me tell you something. When God gets ready to move in this church, He's going to do things. He's going to do some things we'll never understand. And when God begins to move in this church, He's going to do some things that we won't have control over. Are you ready for that? And He said, The problem with you Pharisees is that you thought you had God figured out and God's doing a work among the Gentiles, a new work, God's full of surprises. One thing you can be sure of, and that is this, that God is incomprehensible. And the minute you think you have Him shut up in this little box of brains, He's no longer God because He's greater than your thoughts and mine. Notice the second line of logic uh, that He used. I had a lot more here I want to say on that point, but time's rate wasting. And you're hungry for those hamburgers, I can tell. N- number two, He said, the second line of logic is this, that, that Scripture is being fulfilled in the conversion of the Gentiles and not contradicted. Look at verses 14 through 18. I'll not take time to read those. Now, what he was doing in verses 14 through 18 is quoting from Amos 9 and Jeremiah 12. I want you to jot that down in the, in the index. He's quoting from Jeremiah 12 and Amos 9. And he said, now, when the Gentiles are being saved, he's not, that's not a contradiction of Scripture. That is a fulfillment of Scripture. Now, what that says to me is this. You can always count on God doing that which does not violate His Word. Now, you can't predict what God's going to do all the time. And sometimes, and He does a new work here. Huh? I think that probably some of us are kind of shocked about what He's doing right now anyway. Kind of like that group at First Church Houston when all those come out, came out of the hippie subculture and got saved. Man, they couldn't, they couldn't understand what was happening to them down there. Uh, but you can count on this and you can mark this down. God is not going to do anything that violates His Word. It's true and, and, and faithful. So that if you want to know if this is of God or not, you can verify it by His Word. And everything He's doing, He's doing in direct parallel relationship to the Word He's, he's, he's given us. Third line of logic. And that is this. That the basis of salvation is grace and not works. I'm still on point um, uh, A, oral decision, in case you're wondering. Okay? The basis of salvation is by grace and not works. Now now watch. He said, Therefore, look at verse uh, 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Now, if salvation is by grace apart from works, are we through with the essentials? I mean, does that mean that everybody just live like they want to? Are there no basics to the Christian faith? Are there no essentials that attend one's salvation? Look at verse 20. But 
that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Now, if you're going to read the Bible, you, you, and, and you're just one of those great scholars, you know, I know the Scripture from front to back, you know, you try to read it like a guy who is just reading it for about the first time. And, and he comes to verse 20 and he says, what does that mean? I mean, what's that, what's he talking about? That we're to abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Now, I want to give you the principle that that verse teaches, then I want to illustrate. The principle is this. A lifestyle of love and obedience is to follow salvation. When you're saved, a lifestyle of love and obedience is to follow that salvation and not license. License is not to follow salvation, even though you're free, but a lifestyle of love and obedience. Now I'm going to illustrate. These Gentiles came out of a pagan culture. I mean, they worshipped all kinds of gods, and fornication was a way of life. That is, sexual impurity was a way of life. And their parents... Uh, didn't teach them any of the, 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 the basic principles of what we know it today as the Judeo-Christian faith. Uh, they, they lived just uh, kind of uh, on the basis of the lower nature. I mean, they did what came naturally. But to the Jew, he lived under some basic rigid stri uh, restrictions. For example, they wouldn't eat blood. That is, you know, if something were strangled, they wouldn't eat it because, you know, they, they slit the throat of the animal so the blood would come out. The life was in the blood. And before they'd eat any meat, they'd strain all the blood out of that and boil all the blood out of that meat. They just didn't eat that kind of thing. It wasn't kosher. And so here you had this conglomerate of people, this new church that was just exploding on the world and God was doing these new things among them. And they were having a cookout, kind of like we're having tonight. And here comes this Gentile vine. He, he says, throw me on a steak there. Throw me on a sirloin. Just kind of char it on both sides. I like it, I like it rare. And this Jew is cooking that steak. And he said, oh, he said, it's abhorrent to him. Because they didn't eat blood and the Gentile ate. Sometimes most of their food they ate raw. And here was this Gentile and this Jew trying to worship together in the same church. And he says, I'll take mine rare. And it was abhorrent. And what verse 20 is saying is this. Don't flaunt your grace. Now catch this and get this. It's so important. When you become a Christian, your lifestyle takes a new di direction and dimension. You become a loving servant of others, and you yield to them. You yield to them. They'll know you're Christians by your love. Now, you have rights, and I have rights. I have freedom, you have freedom. The sign of a mature Christian is a person who gives up his rights for essentials. He's saying, just because you have a right as a Christian to eat that blood, don't do it. Live in loving 
a service to the Jews. Now, 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 here was a Gentile who all of his life had been put down by the Jews. You think it's bad that, that these... Um, uh, we're seeing on television this march on Washington and how terrible it was back then where everywhere the black look, he saw the sign for whites only. You think that was bad. You should have been a Gentile in this day. And these Gentiles were called dogs by the Jews. And can't you imagine that when a Gentile became a Christian and he was in this family of church members, he must have thought the natural instinct was to say, I'll get even with him. I'm a Christian. I can eat blood if I want to. Now you flip over. Don't flip over. Turn to pay. Turn to Galatians. I want to show you a verse I found. Let me show you something. Galatians 5. Look at this. What a word. Galatians 5, verse 13. Are you still with me? I know it's past 8, but we're going to be through in 10 minutes. If you'll hang in there. Listen, listen, listen quick. Verse 13. He says... For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, that's the essential. The only essential that was laid upon them out of this council, that this was the basic, that they loved one another. And I think we found it. I think that you can go anywhere in this New Testament and you can find this word pounding out, throbbing out like a vein. Oh, no man anything but to love him. Just love him. Uh, the advertisers, I wish I'd have thought of it. Said, hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special... Special orders don't upset us. Have it your way. I got so sick of that, didn't you? Uh, hold, the, hold the lettuce, hold the pickles, uh, hold the lettuce. Uh, special orders don't upset us. Have it your way. Have it your way. Over and over. That's what, verse, that's what this passage says. When, when you become a Christian, you live, you live in that kind of love for others. Now, I know what you're thinking. Now, now you're, you're thinking this. Now, if I just listen to everybody and, and I just made up live my life on the basis of what, you know, they're, they're looking at me and want me to do this and do that and not do this and not do that, I, I, I'd, there'd be a thousand things every day I'd have to change. I thought you might ask that. I want you to listen to what Ryrie says in Balancing the Christian Life. Listen to this. He says, it's, It is true that if you look long and far enough, you can probably find some other Christian who will object to just about anything you may want to do. On the other hand, one must be careful not to become insensitive to the feelings and consciences of other believers, for to do so is to sin against Him. How does one strike the balance? There are two guidelines that have helped me personally, he said. The first is this. Are you getting this? Is the objecting person really trying to grow and make progress in the spiritual life, or is he simply sitting on the sidelines of a race course, sniping at the runners? If he's actually running with me in the race, then I want to do everything possible to help him be a winner too. But if he's simply a self-appointed judge of all the runners while he himself is making little or no progress in the Christian life, I do not feel obliged to cater to his feeling or his conscience. Guideline number two. How many are apparently affected by what I may feel free to do? Hear this now. This is one of the guidelines used in the early church. It's what we're talking about in Acts 15. For their... There were simply too many Jewish Christians whose spiritual lives were being stunted uh, 
by uh, the legitimate practices of the Gentile converts. This principle can guide us when we are moving from one section of the country to another where believers have different standards, crossing cultural, natural lines, national lines. Thus the two guidelines are, who was hindered, a runner or a laggard, how many were effective? Affected. But the overall principle is this, do everything possible, including restricting your freedom to encourage the spiritual life of your fellow believers. You live like that, and you've lived the essentials of the Christian life. Amen? Well, that's weak. Mercy. I must have went to sleep. Got, got to hurry. I'm going to catch this last. I'm going to skip right on and catch this last. Look at the written statement, verse 28. Notice in verse 20, 28 he says that restricting one's liberty is a burden. Two things I want to say about that. When you give up something you have the liberty to do, it is a burden. I'm not going to play games with you. I'm not going to kid you. When you give up something you have a right to do, it's a burden. Second thing I want to say about it that restrictions are essential. There are some things you're going to have to give up for others. And then there is that public announcement, verse 31, 30 to 31. And if you'll notice in there how amazed they were, they just rejoiced that these were the only essentials, you see. I told the kids out in the, uh, out in the uh, youth, uh, the college department this morning, you know how perspective changes attitude. And I told about this girl who, who wrote her mother from college and she said, Mom, I've met Jim. He's, I met him at a bar right after I got to school. He dropped out of school in the, in the 11th grade and said, I, I think I'm in love with Jim. I moved in with him, Mother. And, uh, and uh, I, think I'm, I, I think I'm pregnant. And said, could you send some money? Uh, he's in trouble and I need some money for his bond. And then, then she put over, you know, and, and on the other side of the letter she said, Mother, none of that on that page is true. But I did flunk French and I, make a D, I made a D in algebra and I need some extra cash. And by that time, Mother's just, just anxious, you know, to send, send that extra cash. And, and it doesn't matter to her that she's flunked French or, or, or failing out. It sure makes a difference what perspective you have on something. Now, he, they, they thought that they were going to lay all these restrictions on them and the only restriction they laid on them was that they loved other people and they rejoiced in that. Let me tell you something. That's not as easy as it looks like. Sometimes loving some people is more difficult than anything God will ever ask you to do for another person. I can tell you that first-hand experience. Now I've learned three responses to the solution. I'm going to give you those right bong, 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 then we're going home. Number one, legalism results in an emphasis on works and the impact is guilt. If you're a legalist and you think that being a Christian is keeping all these rules and getting this little restriction page and following it, then the impact of that is guilt because you never will be able to do it. You never will be able to measure up. Second, license, that is doing, doing it my way, license results in an emphasis on self and the impact is an offense. There is no more offensive person than the person who lives for self. Third, 
I like this. This is where we've been waiting. This is the one we've been waiting on all night. Grace results in an emphasis on Christ and impacts in the reproduction of His life. I got this call not too long ago and I went out to this house and to visit this family. And there was this young guy there and his mother and they were in a real encounter, a real struggle. And it was so sad and they were broken hearted, both of them. She had so many more dreams, so many, so many dreams for him that didn't, he, he was not fulfilling. And he asked me, he said, well, what do you believe about the Christian life? He said, what I hear, what I hear all the time is that that, you know, you, you, you do all these things that these people judge you about, and if you don't do any bad things like they're judging you all the time, then you can be a Christian. That's the Christian life. If you do what these so-called religious fanatics, he called them, want you to do and nothing else. I said, golly, man, that's not the way I understand it. He said, you don't? I said, no. I said, the way I understand, the way you become a Christian is that you just, you, God just accepts you the way you are. And by His grace and unmerited favor, you just come to God and He just takes you just like you are. I mean, warts and all, sin and all. He just loves you just like you are. And then because He loves you just like you are, your life starts changing. That's the way I think it is. Is that grace results in the reproduction of the life of Christ. Aren't you glad? Let's bow and pray. My Heavenly Father, I pray now for this special moment of invitation. The Spirit of a living God will move fresh upon us and come down among us, have His way in our midst. God, I rejoice and I glory in the Word of God. To study it verse by verse is exciting. To sit in a council that took place 2,000 years ago and hear people hammer out the basics. It's the most thrilling thing that's happened today. I pray that right now we'll get back to the essential, that is, that we'll trust Christ for salvation. And that we'll just begin to walk in the newness of His life and in the light of His grace and warmth of His love so we can love other people. I pray this in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Now our invitations are two or three and they're simultaneous. You can come on the third invitation at the same time as the first. I want you to come. That's the thing. First invitation. It's for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. The way they were saved in Simon's day is the same the way they're saved today. And that is just by trusting in Jesus Christ, Him only. Now I'm going to lay these restrictions on you that you have to follow, do, and, and, and accept in order to be a Christian. Just come and give your heart to Jesus. You can do that just like Ron, just like old Todd, just like these other guys. Come and give your life to Jesus tonight. He wants to be your Savior. Oh, He really does. The second invitation is for you to come and place your life in the church. Let me tell you what. Boy, this, this church is exciting me. If I wasn't a member here, I'd join. You know. uh, I think if I go off in revival, I'll just, I'm, I'm not going to move my membership. If I'm gone for a two-week vacation, I'm going to stay. I'm, this is my church. I love this church. I'm telling you what, this is exciting. Come on, join us. You need to if you come from college to college and you come from your home. Boy, we need you here. You know what you can do? You can write back to your folks, your friends, say, hey, God led me to join the church, and I'm excited. 
you see that person on the halls of the of Choctaw Towers or whatever, Chickasha? Is that what it is? You can say, hey, come on down there because let me tell you, I found a church where God is at work. We want you. Don't we, folks? Maybe you just need to come tonight to say, hey, Pastor, I, I, I've been going at the whole wrong way. I want to give my life and rededication to Christ. I, I, I just want to start walking in the grace of God so I can demonstrate Jesus' love. You're going to do it. I just know you are. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. He's going to lead us. We're going to switch over. Wherever we start, we're going to wind up. It's surely the presence of the Lord is in His place. So you might as well get ready for that. You come right quick on the first verse. You come on.